Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 8. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, the Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth, the grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word today, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it instructs us. It reminds us of how glorious you are and who we are. Lord, we need your spirit to enliven it to our hearts, that we might be changed. We need ears to hear. We ask that you would grant that to us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we are continuing in our sermon series through the book of Psalms, we've come to this psalm, and perhaps you're familiar with it, or it sounds familiar to you. It is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. There are at least three references to it, and we'll get to those in a bit. It is a psalm of praise. One commentator says, if there was ever an outline for writing a hymn, it is here that begins and ends with this great doxology about God's majesty, how glorious and majestic his name is. It is a great psalm for us to meditate on, one in which we might start our days to be reminded of God's majesty and glory and the grace and mercy and shared glory that he has given to us, those whom he has created. As we look at the psalm, it is one that carries with it an actual title and description that perhaps, um, you know, all of them have added by the, you know, the publishers of your Bible. But here, when you see this subtext to the choir master, according to the Giddith, the Psalm of David, that's actually included in the Hebrew text to give us some context about what's going on. Not all of the Psalms have that, but this one doesn't. As we look at this, there's a little bit of ambiguity as to what a giddith is and how that helps us understand this. But really, a giddith applies to two things, and I think it is instructive before we begin. It really is a reference to the town of Gath. And so the town of Gath, David lived in for a while, but it's also known for its cultivation of grapes and wine. And so this is for the choir master to, to instruct the choir to sing this glorious hymn according to the Giddith, according to the way of Gath, according to perhaps the songs they would have sang in joyful jubilation as they began to press the grapes at the harvest time. It carries with it this joyful spirit, the Giddith. And so it's no surprise as we read it, it has that same tone. And there are only two other psalms that have this same introduction, this Giddith word, and they are all psalms of praise. 
And so as we think of this psalm, not only as a text of Scripture, but also as a song, we ought to think of it as jovial, right? As, a, as an expression of joy, as a celebration at the time of harvest, as the new wine is being made and the party has commenced. But as we look at our psalm today, I really am going to focus in on one big question. It's a question the psalmist asks, but it's a question that all societies, and in particular ours today, asks. And that is, who is man? Who is man? A psalmist here says, who is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, that you would care for him? It's a statement of humility, seeing at how gloriously powerful and mighty the Lord is, that he would show any attention to man, let alone that he would be given all of these privileges and dominion over God's creation. But the question of who is man, what is that man's essence, is perhaps the most fundamental question of all worldviews, of all societies. Many people try to answer the question, who is man, through science. Right? We think about man biologically. You think about, well, mankind is made up of this DNA, and he has these features and these abilities. Right? If you're naturalistic in your worldview, you think of the biological processes through which man came about. And the only thing that distinguishes mankind from other living beings is just the makeup of the stuff. We, of course, know that that is a limited, though often helpful, explanation about mankind. And there are things about biological makeup that are helpful for us to understand how our bodies work, how God has created us. And yet it does not tell us about the essence of what is man. Other people go to a sociological approach. They look at society and they say, this is how man came about and this is how man is defined by our race or our economic status or by our language or our lineage in our families. Indeed, those things do shape who we are. If we are descendants of a certain family, perhaps even think of Scripture, the descendants of Abraham. Is that not an identifying marker on who they were as a people? But once again, sociological science is falls short of getting to the essence of who mankind is. Perhaps in our society we have two other categories that we tend to think of as being the answer to the question, who is man? We often look at man and we think about their education and abilities, right? Like what we can produce. What is man? Well, I'm a pastor. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a craftsman. I'm a truck driver. Whatever it is that we can do, the experiences we have, the gifts, our education, often is how we answer who man is. Perhaps most pointedly now in our current day is the idea of personal identity. That each person internally knows who they are. And their whole goal in life is to be a manifestation of their true inner self. All of these understandings of mankind can be helpful in some way. And yet, none of them truly answer the question. 
None of them truly get to the essence of what makes mankind unique. None of them get to the heart of what Psalm 8 has for us. Now, Psalm 8 does talk about mankind and his role in the world, his reference to God, the things he has received, his commandment to take dominion. But this is a psalm of praise. It's ultimately a psalm about the Lord. And as our favorite commentator, John Calvin, says, we cannot know God without knowing ourselves, and we can't know ourselves without knowing God. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of man are intrinsically tied to one another because we are created in his image. And so these two things are at play. Essentially, anytime we see it in Scripture, we see descriptions of who God is and how that relates to who his people are. Descriptions of who God is and how that relates to the world he has created. And so it is in Psalm chapter 8. We must understand who God is in order for us to understand who man is. We kind of have a quick outline of maybe five points that I want us to go through today. If you notice, the beginning verse and the last verse are the same. They're both doxologies. We start with a doxology, and then we see the Lord's dominion. We see his dissension. We see his delegated dominion to mankind, and then we see a doxology again at the end. This is our loose outline. Doxology, dominion, dissension, dominion, doxology. But first, we start with verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This word of praise, it carries with it, you see the capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, our Lord. O Lord, our Lord, the true God, how majestic is your name. In all the earth, there is a totality to this proclamation that transcends any other proclamation you would have of any other God at this time. He is not just an ambiguous Lord, but the Lord, he is our Lord. He is the personal God. The one who is Lord over his people. His name is majestic in all the earth. Not merely in Jerusalem, not merely in the Middle East, not in America alone, but throughout the world, the Lord's name is majestic. The idea of majesty, right? You think of the king and his name and his proclamation going forth into all of his land. The Lord's kingship, his majesty extends to the ends of the earth. Not only does it extend to the end of the earth, we see here at the end of the verse, you have set your glory above the heavens. I was driving the other day uh, home after work, and it was one of those days was the sun was kind of beginning to set out in the west, and it was a little cloudy, and you just see those beaming sunlight coming through the clouds. And you could just think, taking a picture of it, and just think, the glory of God. The glory of God has been set in the heavens. It is not tied to people and his creation. It is far and wide, as high as the heavens, as low as the earth. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. This is where we begin to understand who the Lord is and who we are. Not only is the Lord to be praised for who he is and his name, we see a bit about his characters, uh, his characteristics in verse 2. This is where we begin to see how powerful, how much dominion he has. It says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Think of all of the powerful, mighty people in the world at the time when David was alive, at our time now. All of the armies and the weapons of war. All of the enemies and the avengers. All of the evildoers in the world. And yet the Lord is more dominant. Shows more strength out of the mouth of a baby and an infant. Even in the most embryonic form of God's proclamation of his name. is far stronger than the mightiest forces in the world. I was listening back to some of our sermons from the Gospel of John. And I was reminded of that scene in the garden as they came to take Jesus away. There was this band of soldiers and chief priests and people from the temple and Judas to betray him. And they asked, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus came forth, he said, I am. And they fell to the ground. One word from the lips of Jesus undid a whole band of soldiers, those who were coming to take him away by force with lanterns and torches and weapons. The psalmist goes even farther to say, a word, a cry from the mouth of a baby is stronger than any force that comes against the Lord and his name. We begin to see... The Lord's glory in all things. Verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. Everything in God's creation screams of his glory. If you think of Romans chapter 1, it's one of the indictments against those who do not believe that the things of God are clearly known to all people because they are evident in the things in which God has created. It is not a question of whether God exists or not or who the right God is. It is that God is. And people can clearly see it. Those who deny the works of God have blinded themselves, who have chosen not to see. When you look up to the cloud and see those sunbeams coming through, indeed, we can look at the biology and the chemistry and all of the ecological reasons of why those things happen, but it stirs in man a sense of awe because it reveals to us a glimpse of God's glory. When you lay on your deck at night and look up at the stars, is it not captivating? Is it not reveal to us the glorious handiwork of our Creator? All of this majesty, all of this power, all of this glory. And yet, verse 4, God condescends to us. 
He's mindful of us. He thinks about man. He thinks about us and he cares. I've often said it is absurd to say, I know God, God cares about me. Because if you have a true sense about how gloriously powerful, almighty, eternal, unchangeable God is, it is absurd to think that he would care at all. And yet that is what his word proclaims to us. That is what the psalmist is reminding us. He has the same question we have. How is it even possible that someone so magnificent, so powerful, so glorious would even know I exist? And not only know I exist, but care about my life. Oftentimes, we function as deists. We know God exists and that he is in control in some way, but we don't think of God having us in mind. We don't think of God as caring about our needs. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be more opposite than what Psalm chapter 8 is telling us here. God knows each and every one his created men and women he cares about each and every one personally. How much more for those whom he has shown his grace and his favor and redemption in Christ. Is it not that he was mindful of us and sent his son to die for us to show us his care? Indeed, it is unthinkable that such a God could do that for us. And here is where we get to answer the question, what is man? Here we see that it is the one whom God is mindful of, who God has created in his image, who God cares for, who God has given specific responsibility to. Here we see in verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. We're not angels up in heaven and the heavenly host before the throne of God. Instead, God has placed us down here in his world. He has created us here. And he has crowned us with glory and honor. We see all of these phrases in the first three verses about the Lord's might and glory and majesty. And here we see it delegated to his people. It is not merely that we were created alongside the cows and the sheep and the worms and the fish and the birds, but that he gave glory and honor to man. That we are recipients, we are reflectors of God's glory. It has been placed upon our heads like a crown. Any more glorious than we would be angels. To put it another way. And not only has the Lord shown this great favor and this great place of glory and honor, but he has given us our own dominion. Dominion over the works of your hands. The Lord has created these things. And what did he do? He created man to care for them, to 
dominion, have dominion over them to exercise his strength, to cultivate the ground, to care for the beasts. He puts everything below man. He is the pinnacle of God's creation. The sheep and the ox, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and all the things in the paths of the sea, those are all below God's creation of man. They don't have the Lord's glory and honor placed upon them. They have been given to us as gifts to rule over them, to care and tend for them. When we ask the question, who is man? This is our answer. The answer is that we are recipients of God's redemption and glory and honor and dominion. Why is man more powerful than the beasts of the earth? Why are they any different than any other living creature? Because God has made it so. As much as we love our dog at home, he can't know the Lord Jesus Christ. He can't receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we have dominion over him to enjoy him. The Lord has placed us as the chief pinnacle of his creation that we might know him and enjoy him and worship him. That we might sing the praise of Psalm 8 that all might hear around the world. Who is God? Who is man? They are intrinsically tied because we are nothing without God giving it to us, without God making us who we are. We are made in his image, and it means these things. We are reflectors of his glory and honor that he has bestowed on us these gifts. Everything that is good about mankind, despite our fallen nature, is a reflection of God's glory. Reminds us of who he is. It shows us a glimmer. The psalmist ends with the same praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now this psalm is not merely about men and women. God's created people, even his chosen people, Israel, or those who have been redeemed through Christ. But as this has been quoted several times in the New Testament, we see that it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the man. There are a couple of places. Matthew chapter 21 is the first place in which this is quoted. Jesus came into the temple and he turned over the tables of the money changers and he drove out all the animals. He's been a really nice guy. He was zealous for the Lord's house. And the blind and the lame, they came to him to be healed. And the chief priests and the scribes were angry. And they heard children crying out. Wonderful things saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what they are saying? Do you hear what these children are saying? 
And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never heard out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? It is here, the most powerful people in Jesus' day, questioning who he is and what he has come to do. And in a moment of confrontation, it is the little children's song of praise, Hosanna, to the son of David, that their mouths are shut. Because one word of praise of an almighty God Jesus Christ himself receiving this worship reveals to us who he is. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, as he is talking about uh, the redemption in Christ and what he has accomplished for us as the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is uh, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, he said subjection a lot in that passage. But this verse from chapter 8. Verse 6. You have given dominion, him dominion over the works of his hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Not only is that true for us, as those who have been given the mandate to take dominion of the earth, to cultivate the ground, to be fruitful and multiply, ultimately it finds its full fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who will rule and reign perfectly over all things. And indeed, as part of his redemption, part of his uniting us to himself, is the fulfillment of this psalm. That all things are in subject to us on this earth, but ultimately subject to our Lord. That he is the one who is seated on the throne. That his enemies are being made into a footstool. That it is through Christ's dominion, as the true man, the perfect man, that Psalm 8 is ultimately fulfilled. But perhaps most pointed is Hebrews chapter 2. Dollar says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. I'll pause for a second. The world to come. Hebrews chapter 2 takes Psalm 8 and it places it even beyond where we are in redemption. To the new heavens and the new earth of which we are speaking, he goes on. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Talking about Christ here. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory 
should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. When we see a passage quoted like this in the New Testament, it gives us the fullest possible explanation about how this points to Christ. And what we have here is the immediate context about David and about us, about how God has created man. But ultimately, it points ahead. It reminds us that it is Christ who is the creator of all things. In the beginning, was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God, and in him all things were created. Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, made himself lower than even the angels for a time. And it was Jesus, as he died and rose again, that was crowned with glory and honor. And through his death and resurrection, he had victory, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author of Hebrews tells us, but we don't yet see all of this. It is not yet fully known and realized here. We see people living lawless lives. People not recognizing the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the hope that Psalm 8 reminds us of. It reminds us of our place, our delegated Dominion, it shows us the delegated glory and honor that we have, but far greater than that, it points us to Christ, who identifies with us. That if we want to know who man was meant to be, who man truly is, we look to Jesus Christ, the God-man, God incarnate, come in flesh. If we want to see what true rule and dominion looks like, we will see it consummated as Christ comes and makes all things new. As he rules with perfect justice. Indeed, we will participate in his rule and reign in the world now and in the age to come. It is the hope of Psalm 8. It reminds us that God is not far off and uninterested, that he knows you and he cares for you. And ultimately, that as we are found in Christ, These promises about man will be fulfilled perfectly, just as Christ fulfilled everything perfectly while he was here with us. And so as we languish, as we don't quite see these things working out, as we don't feel honor and glory, as we don't think we have dominion over things in our lives, ultimately we know that Christ is the one who truly fulfills all of these things. And as we are found in him, as we long for the day when he will come again, we can find comfort, knowing that he will make all things new. And we will join the psalmist with this hymn, with this song of praise, O Lord, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Everything you have done, all of the dominion you've shown, How majestic is your name. May God give us hearts of worship. May we see his glory. May we sing his praises. And may we wait in patience until he comes again to fulfill all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ 
has dominion. That he has defeated all of his and our enemies. That through his death and resurrection, you have crowned him with honor and glory. And as those who have been united to him, you have shown us your favor. Lord, it is unthinkable that the God of this world, of all the world, of heaven and earth, would be mindful of us. He would care for us. And that, that, that is who you are. It is your delight. It is your plan. It is what we see in Christ coming to us. Lord, may that be our identity. May that be who we are. May we live as those who are created in your image. We need your help to do this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.